Welcome back to Bookum, a podcast where I read great books for you. Today we continue the story of Walls Within Walls by Maureen Sherry. In our last episode, CJ and Brid met some unusual neighbors and paid a visit to the New York Public Library, hoping to return a long-lost book and get some answers. Their visit, however, left them in possession of more clues and puzzles. And now, back to Walls Within Walls. Chapter 6 When they returned home, Ray, the afternoon elevator man, was on duty. His thick eyebrows grew straight across his face and touched in the middle as if someone had drawn a hairy gray line above his eyes. Brid and CJ quickly returned to the apartment and collected Patrick, who was playing with his Legos, looking bored. Then they summoned the elevator again. "'Take us to the Williamsons, please,' said Brid, when Ray appeared. "'They expecting you?' is what Ray asked, but because his words all ran together, it sounded like, "'They expecting you?' The kids had started to call Ray's talk the Uniword, a sentence all pushed into one long word. So when C.J. answered, "'Not sure,' he said, "'Not sure.' Apparently that was good enough for Ray." He rotated the round brass throttle to the right to engage the elevator gears, and they lifted off. On the south side of the building, the 14th floor, Ray rotated the wheel left, pushed the sliding brass door right, and leaned on the lever to finally pull back the wooden door to reveal the Williamson's apartment. Have a nice day, came the Uniword, and in an instant Ray was gone. The Williamson's apartment, like many others, used the space right up to the elevator door as part of their entrance, so when the elevator door opened, the Smithworks found themselves immediately in someone else's home, someone who wasn't expecting them. This apartment was much grander than theirs. The walls were paneled in wood that smelled like oil. There were statues that seemed to belong in a museum. This was not a home where footballs were tossed around. Pat's eyes grew wide and frightened, and he motioned back toward the elevator, pointing his finger to indicate he thought they should leave before they were found out. "'Hello?' Brid called softly. She wished Ray hadn't left them, and that she could go back home and call the Williamsons properly, but it was too late for that. A small white dog came running at them with the ferocious bravery of a Rottweiler. It stood about ten inches off the ground and appeared to have fur that was blown dry. It jumped at Patrick with its teeth bared, easily reaching his thighs. "'Whoa, killer!' said Pat, raising his arms and stepping backward away from the tiny beast. It was a bad move. He'd bumped into a stone pedestal that held an enormous and expensive-looking stone statue. The statue fell forward. For one horrifying second, it leaned as they all realized it was about to smash on the unforgiving stone floor. "'Watch it!' yelled C.J. He dove toward the statue grabbing it in a bear hug and landing on his knees. All three children exhaled in relief, and the little dog stopped yapping and ran back down the hall, his poofy fur forming a halo around his head. Just as C.J. was about to say something sharp to Pat about watching his clumsy self, Pat preempted him by giggling. Brid soon joined him as they both realized that C.J. was hugging a bone-white, headless, naked woman made of stone, it was at this moment that a woman came padding down the hall toward them. 
She did not look pleased. Hello, C.J. said in a meek voice, unsure where to begin explaining. The woman was dressed in a gray and white maid's uniform. Her silvery hair was constricted inside a hairnet. Her legs were thick inside her stockings, and her feet were covered in the same blue surgical booties that the Williamson children had worn to the Smithfork apartment. Brid seemed to remember Lily saying their housekeeper was named Sonia. "'What are you going to do with that statue?' she hissed in an accusing voice. C.J. was trying to get off the floor while not dropping the headless naked woman. Um, my brother fell into the pedestal when the dog came running at him, and he knocked the statue over, and I caught it. The woman looked skeptical. Brid tried to lift the statue out of C.J.'s arms, but it was heavier than it looked. "'A little help here?' Brid asked the maid. "'Who let you people into this home?' she asked, as Pat came to the aid of Brid and C.J. It was then that the maid realized how close the statue was to being dropped, and she grabbed it. I asked, who let you children into this home? We showed ourselves in. We live on the other side of the wall. We wanted to talk to Lucas and Lily, Brid said meekly. The woman raised eyeglasses from a chain around her neck to get a better look at the Smithworks. Brid felt raggedy and underdressed. Lucas and Lily came over to our house unannounced this morning. We thought it worked both ways, C.J. said. We're really sorry. We thought it would be okay. The woman's face softened a notch. Really, they didn't call first, she asked. I'm surprised. I will speak to them about that right now. Wait! C.J. didn't mean to get Lucas and Lily in trouble, but the maid had already turned to a small panel near the door and pressed Lucas's name on an LED screen. The screen seemed so out of place, so cutting-edge and modern compared to the antiques, but it did the trick. Lucas's voice emerged from the wall. Oui, madame? Unbelievable. C.J. thought, when the maid replied to this in French. They speak French, and they aren't even French. What is up with this family? Tout de suite, came the reply. I'll be right there. Soon they heard the familiar sound of padding feet, and Lucas appeared. What a grand surprise, he said. Yes, well, we were surprised too, Patrick said. Lucas just looked at him quizzically. Brid had never heard kids talk the way the Williamsons did who weren't kidding around. We were just hanging out at home, and we thought if you had a moment you could show us around a little. We haven't seen the servants' rooms you told us about, and we'd like to. Of course, that would be a real pleasure, Lucas replied. Let me get Lily. She would love to see you again. Sonia, do you have the keys for downstairs storage? He asked the maid. Also, we will be needing shoes, he added. Something casual, such as loafers, would be perfect. I'm going to take our new neighbors to see the bowels of the building. While Brid was still wondering how someone their age could use the word bowels to describe the basement, Sonia went away and returned with Lily, keys, and some shoes. She placed the shoes directly in front of the elevator so that the children would take only one step in the home while wearing them. The servants' quarters, comprised of a long, dark row of rooms, were on a dusty and deserted floor halfway underground. Many of the rooms had padlocks on them. Brid imagined how simply the servants must have lived compared to the splendid surroundings of the people they served. "'Does anyone live down here any more?' C.J. asked. "'No,' said Lucas. "'It really was a different time. This hall used to be filled with drivers, cooks, nannies, butlers, and housekeepers. Now it's filled with people's belongings.' At the room on the end he held up an antique-looking key Sonia had given him, and turned it in the lock. 
The door made a complaining, squealing noise. Anyway, here are the quarters for the fourteenth-floor servants. Not much to look at, but it would make a good clubhouse. Clubhouse, said C.J. flatly. Like for a six-year-old? Pat gave one of his electric blue wide-eyed head shakes. Cool! Brid knew why C.J. was so irritable. He had hoped to see a keyhole, a place that would accept the massive key bulging from his front pocket, the key from the library. Instead, when Lucas opened the door, they all took in the endless shelves which were stuffed with brown boxes and piles of books with titles like Tiffin Glass Collectors Club, Garden of Earth Book of Plant Life, and Great Homes of Chicago, 1871 to 1929. Brid raised an eyebrow toward C.J., wondering if he thought any of this was relevant to the treasure hinted at in the book they picked up from the library. It looks like they moved out in a pretty disorganized way, Brid said. Or really quickly, said C.J. Or just didn't care much about their stuff, said Brid. Or what if they had just already read these books and left them for the new people, Pat added. Or, said Lucas, maybe the owner passed away. His voice was so respectful and matter-of-fact that the Smithforks immediately felt bad about their manners. Is that what happened? asked Brid finally. Did they die? Not they, but he, said Lucas. You see, Mr. Post was a huge collector, a man who loved architecture, poetry, and paintings. He had a friend named J.P. Morgan. Morgan was a financier and philanthropist, and both men were known for their incredible collections. Collections of what? asked Brid. Mr. Morgan had art, sculptures, rare manuscripts, and early children's books. Mr. Post had architectural renderings, jewelry, and poetry. The two men hosted a monthly salon of smart, fancy people to share and discuss some of their acquisitions, to show them off. It was the hot ticket of the time. "'How do you know all that?' C.J. asked him. Lucas didn't answer, but continued. "'You see, Post also loved puzzles. He sometimes used to send invitations to his salons in riddle form. If you couldn't solve the riddle, you didn't know where and when the salon would be held. Apparently he never went easy on anyone or just gave them the information. When he passed on, the story was that he had a will, but it was such a riddle his heirs couldn't collect their inheritance. He died before he had a chance to leave all the clues his family needed in order to figure out where their inheritance was. "'But what about the apartment? Those rules that said the walls of the apartment had to stay the same?' Brid asked. "'Yes, obviously Post didn't want anyone to mess with his original building, but that made it hard for his family to sell.' Instead, they just ordered the apartment sectioned in four and had new walls put up for the next tenants and moved out. But that was a long time ago. Your apartment was empty for years. I'm sure Mr. Post's desire to maintain the apartment's original style and beauty was a sincere one. Maybe he just couldn't bear to think of his place being destroyed. Want to see a photo of Post? Lucas asked. Sure, the kids said in unison. Lucas went rummaging in a box before pulling something out. Here it is, he said, wielding a large portrait in a wooden frame. Behold, the Post family. C.J. and Brid gasped in a most uncool and transparent way. Chapter 7 The picture that Lucas held up was a photograph. It showed a woman and a man standing expressionlessly behind their daughter, who appeared to be about eight or nine. 
they stood in front of a massive two-story library with floor-to-ceiling bookshelves. In the midst of the shelving was a large painting of a solemn woman with doleful eyes. One of those eyes appeared to be the same one that looked into C.J.'s bedroom. Logically, the other eye still lay behind the wall in 14 South, the Williamson's apartment. Brid wondered if that other eye contained Skip 7 writing, too. Halfway up the wall in the photograph was a very wide shelf, and propped against that shelf in the corner was a wooden ladder, a means by which someone could retrieve a book from a high shelf. That shelf had to be the narrow ledge that held the copy of Treasure Island. Lucas spoke first. The Post family must have taken down all that shelving by the time our family bought our apartment and changed the upper floors from a library to bedrooms. Lucas continued, This is the father and mother, and I believe their daughter's name was Eloise. He pointed to the skinny girl who wore a coat buttoned to her chin and carried a muff. Brid and C.J. gave each other a knowing glance. They knew her name was Eloise. Looking closely at the photograph, Patrick asked, why is she the only one dressed to go outside while her parents are dressed to be inside? The Williamsons looked thoughtful. She seems like she's about to go somewhere, said Lily. She looks a little familiar, said Brid, to change the subject and keep Pat from talking too much. Did she become famous later in life? That's the puzzle, said Lucas. I once had to write a biography for a homework assignment, and I chose to write about Mr. Post, her father but their family history came to a halt when he died in 1937. The rest of the family seemed to have just disappeared. "'What do you mean?' Brid asked, thinking that 1937 was the same year the copy of Treasure Island had been borrowed from the library. "'Well, they were wildly rich and social. They held magnificent parties, gave a lot of money to charity, and were always in the newspaper. One summer the father died suddenly of a heart attack, and little was written about the family ever again, except as regards his fortune. He left the apartment to his wife and to his son and daughter, with a demand about keeping the walls intact. As we know, they did that, but then they seemed to have vanished. There were newspaper stories wondering what happened to their fortune, but that was about it. Mrs. Post moved down to Washington, D.C., and dropped from the party scene. The story simply ended for the Post family. Wait! said Patrick. They had a son, too? He's not in the picture. Yes, he's hardly in any pictures, and there's little mention of him anywhere. The rumor was that he died in an accident of some sort. Sad, Pat said simply. Brid looked again at the thin, solemn girl. She doesn't look very happy, and neither do her parents. So much for my mom's idea that our apartment has happy family karma. Lily interjected. People didn't smile in photographs in those days, so we cannot judge happiness by that fact. They certainly didn't yell cheese the way you Americans do. Brid answered, First of all, you're American, too, and maybe some of us like to say cheese. Second, maybe Eloise was just about to step outside, but something made them all stop and take a photo. Maybe she was about to go on a trip without them, said Patrick. Maybe boarding school, Lucas said. No, she's too young to be going off to school alone, said Brid. She looks as though she's about eight, said Lily. Old enough, said Lucas. That's old enough, asked Brid. We left for boarding school when we were eight, but our school takes children as young as six. Six-year-olds in boarding school, 
said Patrick, imagining himself heading overseas alone. No way! But Mr. Post loved Eloise, said Brid. Why would he ever send her away? Children at boarding school are loved very much, said Lucas. It's just that our parents like the structure of our education. The class of it, added Lily. What do you mean by class? said C.J., who was suddenly missing his Brooklyn school more than ever. In England, people of a certain rank in society mostly attend boarding school, and back when the posts were alive, Americans with English roots often did the same. The children were silent for a moment while C.J. fingered the photo frame. So why do you go? he asked. Go? To boarding school, said C.J., "'As I told you, our parents travel so much. "'It's easier on everyone this way,' Lucas said. "'Brid and C.J. looked at each other. "'Maybe a nanny like Maricel wasn't so bad, after all.' "'Before they parted ways, Lucas gave the key to the servants' quarters to Brid. "'We leave in the morning for England. "'Why don't you use these in our absence? "'We'll see you again at winter holiday, right?' "'Brid took the key and impulsively hugged Lily, "'who stood with her arms stoically at her sides.' That night, Pat lay on C.J.'s floor with thousands of Lego pieces spread around him. Nobody could tell what he was building. It was a flat structure with giant spikes in the air. C.J. lay on his bed with Mr. Post's book of poetry. It contained only seven poems, and he had read and reread all of them and was starting to get some ideas about how Mr. Post's treasure hunt might work, but he didn't want to tell the others yet. He looked at the seven titles, some famous and some not. THE WEARY BLUES by Langston Hughes Ulysses by Alfred Lord Tennyson Faint Heart in a Railway Train by Thomas Hardy Recuerdo by Edna St. Vincent Millay The New Colossus by Emma Lazarus A Crowded Trolley Car by Eleanor Wiley Ota Benga by Anonymous Meanwhile, Brid had taped poster board to the wall where she was transcribing the Skip 7 message from the eye behind the wall. C.J. kept glancing over at it. Seven clues on seven structures get water from above to rupture. C.J. broke the quiet hum in the room. Guys, do you know how many poems are in the book? I've no idea, Brid remarked. Too many? Seven, probably, said Pat, without looking up. C.J. laughed. Exactly. I'm seeing a pattern here with that number seven. In his letter, Mr. Posts tells Eloise and Julian to visit some sites in New York City, sites they'd visited together in the past, and then he gives them a book that has seven poems in it. The message from the eye talks about seven structures, and the message was in Skip 7 code. Wouldn't it make sense? If there was one clue in each poem that points us to a specific place, like a building or structure, maybe we just need to find seven places or buildings here in New York City. What do we do when we find them? Look through gigantic buildings for treasure? Pat asked. Won't that be hard? Maybe. I have a feeling we won't know what we're looking for until we see each structure, said C.J. Brid looked up from her notes. So we go to a building that a poem reminds us of, and then we get water from above to rupture she asked that's what i'm not sure about said cj but i think i'm getting closer i don't know about the first poem but the second one is ulysses it's a famous poem about not giving up not surrendering 
What building could possibly be about not giving up? Pat said, rummaging through his Legos. A fort? Close, said CJ. I think the answer is in the title of this poem. Duh, said Brid. It's a one-word title, and there are no buildings or forts in New York called Ulysses, right? Actually, said CJ, there is one enormous structure in the city with that name on it. He was a general. Like in the army, Patrick said? Yes, and he became president of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant. Ever heard of Grant's tomb? Come on, it's one of the corniest jokes of all time. Pet, who's buried in Grant's tomb? Asked CJ. Uh, Grant? Bingo. There must be something in Ulysses S. Grant's tomb. Mr. Post must have left something for his son and daughter there. Maybe we can find it. Where exactly is Grant's tomb? Brid asked. Not sure, but it's in Manhattan, CJ said. Wait. Pat said, so we have to get something from that structure, and the structure is a tomb? Maybe we have to get a dead body out. I'm not taking any dead bodies anywhere, Brid said, matter-of-factly. Ew, it's too creepy, Pat replied. Then what do we do with it, Brid asked, assuming Grant's tomb is the right answer. Like I said, I have no idea, but maybe we'll know when we see it, said CJ. No idea, repeated Brid. But we do need to start somewhere, so let's start at Grant's tomb. Chapter 8 The next afternoon, after C.J. and Brid finally did buy their school uniforms, C.J. plotted the trip to Grant's tomb at 122nd Street and Riverside Drive. He printed out internet photographs of the mausoleum, thinking they could go tomorrow or the next day. The kids were hanging out in C.J.'s room, Sprawled out on C.J.'s bed, Brid was reading Mr. Post's book of poems, taking methodical notes as she looked for clues. "'Hey, shoes off my bed,' C.J. said with an English accent. "'What are you, a member of the Williamson family?' Brid joked. Patrick was building quietly with his Legos, trying his hardest to be silent. He'd noticed the older kids let him hang around more, as long as he didn't interrupt much." He liked his new life of being included. He felt like a big kid. He was trying to build a model of Grant's tomb with his Lego pieces. It was hard to get the rounded roof done with the square blocks, and he was getting frustrated. Patrick glanced up at Brid. He had looked at the book of Mr. Post's poems earlier when he was alone, but the words made no sense to him. They confused him and made him feel like he couldn't help solve the mystery, that he was still a little kid after all. Now his eyes strayed to the black cover, which was brown leather with a strange, inky blob smeared across the middle. The more he stared at it, the more he saw something. Finally, he just couldn't stay quiet. Is that book about, um, what? Brid said flatly. I think his poem book is about dying, because his book says death on the back, Pat said. Patrick, what are you babbling about? Pat, said C.J., can we stay on topic here? We're talking about Grant's tomb. Oh, said Patrick, deflated. He tried again. That inky blob, it says something about death. Brid lowered the book. Why are you being so annoying right now? Look at the back of the book, Patrick insisted. Brid turned the book over. This thing? she asked Pat. It's a blob of ink. No, you're not holding it the right way now, Pat said. He climbed onto the bed and adjusted the book, holding it at arm's length. 
Brid and C.J. saw one long, stretched word, only recognizable to someone looking carefully at exactly the right level. Holy mother of a llama, C.J. said softly. What is that word, said Brid. Patrick ignored them. It's talking about death. No, said C.J., kindly, remembering how his little brother twisted letters sometimes. Well, almost. It doesn't say D-E-A-T-H. It says H-E-A-R-T-H. Hearth, said Patrick. What does hearth mean? Brid recorded this new development in her notebook. In a fireplace, said C.J., it's the open spot in a wall at the base of the chimney. This apartment is full of chimneys, said Brid, getting excited. We have three of them. I bet something's hidden in the hearths, she shrieked. C.J. snatched the book from Brid, ignoring the little dance she and Patrick were doing. He recited the first two lines of Ulysses. It little profits that an idle king by this still hearth among these barren crags. I get it, shouted Brid. It's the second time Post is leading us to a hearth. But which one? She slammed C.J.'s door open and took off down the hallway. C.J. and Patrick followed her into the living room, where Brid ducked inside the enormous limestone fireplace and stood upright. They all have tile around them, but this one has the most. Brid's voice was muffled under the massive fireplace frame. "'What's going on here?' came Maricel's shrill voice, surprising everyone. Their nanny came into the room with Karen toddling after her. "'We were looking at tiles,' C.J. said quickly. "'Oh, are your parents going to change the tiles?' Maricel asked as she reached down to pick up Karen. "'No, we're just interested in the, um, the tiling,' C.J. said. "'I mean, the hearth is really nice, and we're just admiring it.' At that moment, they were mercifully interrupted by the sound of the elevator— in sauntered Bruce Smithbork, much earlier than expected. For Karen and Patrick, all else was forgotten as they attacked their father with ferocious bear hugs. It was still light outside, not a time they were used to seeing him any more. "'What are you up to?' Bruce Smithfork asked, glancing around quizzically. "'Looking for Santa?' None of the children knew how to answer. Chapter 9 Back when they lived in Brooklyn, C.J. knew he could count on his father to leave his basement office at 4 p.m. and come upstairs. Mr. Smithfork would cook, throw a football around, or help the kids with homework, but he would never, ever go back to his office. Now that he worked in a midtown skyscraper, his home office seemed like a second job he had to go to. He often came home late and then would go right into his office. Sometimes he even ate in there. So, Dad said Brid. How'd you get out of work so early? Their dad pushed his bushy brown hair back from his face and said, I thought I'd come home early because school starts tomorrow. Dad, said Brid, school doesn't start until September 7th, and today is just the second. I knew that, their dad said a little sheepishly. Want to throw the football around? This grabbed Patrick's attention. In the park, he asked. Great idea, said Brid. But C.J. and I have a lot of homework, so why don't you just take Patrick and we'll see you back here for dinner? C.J. glared at Brid. Homework? School hadn't even started, so how could they have homework? Dad, said Patrick, looking outside onto Fifth Avenue, didn't you notice it's raining? I didn't mean football in the park, their dad said. I meant living room football. They don't call this a ballroom for nothing. 
He winked, and C.J. thought he hadn't seen his dad do that in a really long time. Three minutes later, they were passing the football around. Maricel had carried off Karen, protesting loudly for a bath. With its 20-foot ceilings and rectangular shape, the living room was the perfect miniature football field. C.J. moved the two long couches against the walls, making end zones. Brid stuck brooms and mops deep into the cushions so they stood upright, creating goalposts. Luckily, they hadn't done much in the way of unpacking, so there was nothing breakable in the room. Even though dragging around the furniture scratched the floor and putting dirty mops on a couch wasn't a sanitary idea, Bruce Smithwork didn't say a word. As soon as Brid got the final handle to stay upright, Patrick yelled, Hike! And the game was on. The teams were Mr. Smithfork and Patrick versus C.J. and Brid, and soon both sides were in a sweaty rumble. Collapsing at last onto the floor, C.J. thought it was a good time to ask their dad some questions. Dad, do you know who lived here before us? Nope, they were renters, not owners. We bought the apartment from people we never met. We really liked this apartment because it had so much character. It seemed like the walls had stories to tell us, stories from a different time. Brid and C.J. looked at each other as their dad stood up and moved his tie around his forehead like a sweatband. "'Go long, Pat!' he yelled as he let the ball sail to his younger son. C.J. easily two-hand touched his brother to stop the play, and Pat fell hard onto the couch. "'But the original owner died a long time ago, right?' C.J. said. "'That's right.' He died and left the original apartment to his family, and they divided it up into four different apartments. They all came up for sale after the Great Depression, when it was hard to sell any apartment, never mind one with bizarre rules attached. The fact that not only that owner, but any owner in the future, had to agree to not wreck the walls made it a bit of a white elephant. A what? asked Brid. An expensive possession that is a financial burden to maintain, said C.J. It's just an expression. Just then, Maricel came back into the living room with Karen. She looked alarmed at the football game, but Karen was grinning. We pay you? Karen asked. Of course you can play with us, said her dad. She just had her bath, said Maricel. She shouldn't get dirty now. Playtime is done for the day. It's just football, said Mr. Smithfork. Living room football is very clean. Maricel gathered her purse from the front hall. "'Good night,' she said with an edge to her voice, and rang the elevator button. Boom! Brid dove for a long-shot pass and landed on the back of the couch so hard that it fell over backward. It smacked the uncovered wooden floor with a noise that echoed loudly through the apartment. Karen burst out laughing while Patrick dove on top of Brid. Thinking this was a game she would like, Karen got on top of him. As they lay there, spluttering and giggling, the elevator arrived for Maricel. They were surprised to see that Ray was accompanied by two women. One wore a white blouse, dark skirt, a strand of pearls, and sensible pumps. She looked around eighty years old. The other wore what C.J. has started to call the Fifth Avenue uniform, a simple gray dress with a white apron across the front. This was the dress of the helpers, the dog walkers, the nannies, the maids, the baby nurses, and the ladies hired to buy groceries. The neighborhood was filled with women wearing these clothes. The older woman stood with her mouth open, staring at the overturned couch and Mr. Smithfork with a tie around his head. Aside from the heavy panting of the football players, there was no sound in the room. Maricel shrugged and stepped into the elevator, leaving the two strange women with the Smithforks. 
"'May I help you?' asked Mr. Smithfork. Brid stared at the older lady. She was on the shorter side, light-skinned, twinkly-eyed, and fine-boned. Something about her seemed familiar. Brid watched the woman's eyes sweep the room, taking note of the living-room goalposts and the overturned couch. For a flash, Brid thought she saw a half-smile. The woman cleared her voice. "'Yes, hello. I'm your downstairs neighbor, and this is my housekeeper, Annika. We were just making certain a bomb hadn't exploded up here,' she said with a smile. Annika added, "'I think Madame would like to request quieter behavior. Madame's apartment has very high ceilings, so the noise you make here is amplified downstairs.' "'I'll bet she has high ceilings,' thought C.J. According to the floor plan of the original apartment, that floor had much more height than the Smithfork apartment.' Her ceiling had to be thirty-five feet high. But before anyone could answer, a cry came for the kitchen. Dinner! It was their mom. Oh, yes, said Mr. Smithfork, who was now awkwardly trying to remove his tie from his forehead. Please, ladies, we are sorry about the noise. We didn't want to play outside in the rain. Yeah, said Brid, we kind of take the word ballroom literally. The elderly woman cracked a full smile at Brid's joke. She seemed apologetic, so when Mrs. Smithfork yelled, Dinner! the second time, Patrick asked, Want to stay for dinner? My mom makes the best chocolate cake. Oh, we didn't mean to interrupt anything. We just haven't heard so much life up here in a long time. I'm glad everyone is all right, she said, smoothing her hair. Well, at least come meet my wife, said Mr. Smithfork, who seemed to want a second chance to make a good impression. Brid hated that he seemed to care what people thought of him these days. Annika bent to remove her shoes. Brid said, "'You can leave your shoes on. It's not that kind of house.' "'Oh, okay,' Annika said, with relief in her voice. Without anyone showing them where to go, the two women made the two right turns that took them down the hall to the kitchen. The family padded behind them. Brid turned to C.J. and whispered, "'How did they know how to get to the kitchen?' Mrs. Smithfork didn't cook like the chefs on television." No neat little piles of matching chopped foods arrayed in colorful bits. The Smithfork kitchen had oozy liquid dripping from the stainless steel countertops. Sprinkles of herbs dusted the floor, and bits of vegetables were scattered about. Sizzling chicken parts spat grease onto the industrial-sized gas range. C.J. and Brid felt a little embarrassed that their mom looked so messy in front of these prim women. "'Hi there! Welcome!' Mrs. Smithfork practically shouted." "'Hello, ma'am,' said Annika. "'Pleasure to make your acquaintance. "'I work for your downstairs neighbor, Mrs. Munn,' she added, "'gesturing toward the older woman. "'And my name is Annika. "'We just came up to say hello, and I guess welcome you to the building. "'I'm embarrassed that we haven't brought a housewarming gift,' said Mrs. Munn. "'Would you like to stay for dinner tonight?' Mrs. Smithfork said brightly. "'Oh, what a lovely invitation,' said the older woman. "'Perhaps another time?' She seemed surprised by Anne Smithfork's spontaneity. "'Oh, I understand,' said Mrs. Smithfork, as the chicken started to smoke. "'We'll see you again. Yes, goodbye. "'Yes,' said Mr. Smithfork, looking a little defeated, "'and we'll keep the noise level down.' The older lady nodded and grinned and went back to the elevator with Annika trailing behind her.